0: I'd like you to turn to John chapter 18. We'll look at the first 24 verses of the chapter. Um, As you may be aware, John writes uh, this uh, gospel a number of years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. And he doesn't cover always the same things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover. Uh, So, for example, at this point in... In uh, the other three Gospels, uh, you would have, uh, we would have read about uh, Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane. In this passage, he goes into the Garden, but his time of prayer there and, and agonizing and asking, Can this cup pass from me? If not, then your will and not mine be done, and I'll drink this cup. Uh, John doesn't uh, cover that when John begins this passage and says when Jesus spoke these words, he's speaking of another prayer, the prayer in John chapter 17 that's not included in the other Gospels. So in both cases, uh, this passage of his Jesus arrest comes after his prayer, an appropriate preparation for the challenge of being arrested. Uh, John wants us to understand, as he does in other passages here, That when Jesus goes to the cross, it's not an accident. It's not an unfortunate thing that messed up an otherwise fruitful ministry of teaching. Instead, it was Jesus' purpose to go to the cross. And we will see in this passage how much Jesus was in control of that process of his being arrested. As I read it, think about Think about uh, the, the things that fill your mind. Maybe a television program you've watched, maybe some movie, or maybe a novel that you've been reading. The situation is one in which someone is in danger. They and maybe their group around them, they're in danger. They might be arrested. They might be uh, uh, captured by some enemy force or something like that. And so you think of all the evasive maneuvers that they make. All the deception they use to try to hide from those who are trying to arrest them or capture them. The things that they do to, to change their appearance they cut their, shave their head off and dye their, their hair, uh, their beard a different color. They change their clothes. They do everything that possible to avoid being captured, avoid being arrested, uh, because this is not what they want. Keep that in mind as we read through these verses in in John chapter 18 uh, because Jesus' response is totally opposite of theirs. Beginning with verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, uh, where there was a garden which he and his disciples uh, entered. Now Judas... um, "...whom you gave me, uh, I have not lost one. I have lost not one." Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what, what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer, the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to look at this passage in Scripture We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and would open our minds and our hearts, that we would grasp what John is relating to us here, that we would understand things about our Lord Jesus that we didn't understand before, that we would understand things about ourselves as well, that we would understand what it was that Jesus took on our behalf, what was in this cup of your wrath, and what Jesus was willing to do for our salvation. Give us that insight, Lord, and open our hearts to you. In Christ's name, amen. As I said, think about that contrast. Uh, The accounts that you've heard recently um, were uh, read or seen. uh, would talk about someone who knew that their arrest was coming. That someone was going to capture them. And so what they do is they go to some place that Whoever is seeking them would never expect. Uh, so they go that place because they think I'm I'm going to be safe here. Uh, they they cross some boundary if they can. They leave the state of North Carolina uh, or they leave the United States and go to Mexico or Canada. Uh, they they buy a ticket to some foreign country with no extradition agreement with the United States. They change their appearance. Uh, they arm themselves well in order to fight off any any uh, uh, people who may come to, to take them captive uh, they're doing all kinds of things to avoid this Jesus is in such a such a contrast uh, this comes after he had said these words after he had prayed to his father in, in John chapter 17 or after he has prayed to his father in the garden of Gethsemane Uh, in preparation for his arrest. Jesus comes to his father and he says, this is the cup that I'm supposed to drink. And not my will father, but yours be done. I will take this cup. I will be the one who is arrested. So Jesus comes and he comes because he needs to go to the cross. He needs to go to the cross for you and I. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus was a good teacher and in and it's such a sad thing that he uh, was only able to teach into his early 30s. Imagine if he had lived a long life and had been able to teach even longer and, and maybe write his own book. Uh, imagine what could have happened if, if he didn't deal with these uh, jealous uh, Jewish leaders, uh, if he wasn't uh, brought before Pontius in this sham of a trial and, and wasn't uh, crucified on the cross. Uh, He didn't deserve all of this. Why did he have to go through all of this? And why was his otherwise useful ministry cut short? Jesus knew it was different than that. Jesus came for the purpose of going to the cross for us. And Jesus is the one, if you look at this passage, who is really in control in this situation. Uh, Judas comes with, with a whole band of people armed and equipped to arrest Jesus. Uh, Other people have boasted, other people who are in in positions of authority like Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. And yet Jesus is the one who is really in charge in this context. You notice in verse 4 that it says, uh, Jesus knowing what was about to happen. Uh, Jesus didn't, um, uh, didn't make the mistake of being arrested because he didn't anticipate what was really going to happen. Judas may have uh, thought that this was not going to end in death. Uh, Other people may have thought uh, that this was not going to end in his death. It was just going to be a public exoneration or a public clarification of who Jesus was and maybe he'd get a slap on the wrist or something like that. But uh, John says, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, knowing what it meant to go to the cross, knowing what it meant to be to be beaten and, and uh, to be mocked and, and to have to carry his own cross and go to that and suffer for our, our, for our sakes. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, does these things. Uh, it says that Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place where they were going. Jesus went across the Kidron Valley, uh, a, a small dry stream uh, that was just outside the city wall of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, this garden he went to was less than a mile uh, from where they had the Lord's Supper. So Jesus didn't go far. <clears throat> he, he went to a place that was nearby. And in fact, the route that they would have followed probably went south for a little ways through a city gate and then and then to follow that stream bed north crossing in at some point. And in fact, from that place, you could look up and you could see the Temple Mount. So the high priests and the the Jewish leaders who were so opposed to Jesus' ministry could almost look out over the wall and and see where Jesus and his disciples were. Jesus was not hiding, nor did he go to some strange place, but he picked the place of his arrest. He, He picked a place that Judas would know. He picked a place that they would not have to go far to find him. He picked a place uh, where it would be private because they had been afraid to arrest Jesus because their fear of the crowds. So instead of being in the temple among all the people where he had been teaching before and they were afraid to arrest him, he goes to a place uh, at night, a place that would be quiet, a place they could rest him without, without uh, disturbing the public. So Jesus goes to this place. He had even said to, to Judas shortly before that, when, when Judas left uh, the upper room where they were having the Lord's Supper, he, he talked to his disciples and said, one of you is going to betray me. And the others didn't know who it was, but, but Jesus says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Jesus had said, in a sense, uh, don't put this off. I'll be waiting for you. I'll be, rest, I'll be waiting for you in the usual place where you know how to find me. Judas comes and it says that he, he brought with him um, he, a, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees that were went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas comes with an overwhelming mob The soldiers uh, would have been a group of Roman soldiers who were uh, uh, given to the the high priest and the Jewish leaders to help maintain order and peace in the city during the Passover. Uh, So, these Roman soldiers were there, and it refers later to their commanding officer. There were also the guards from the the temple uh, who were under the authority of the chief priests and the leaders in the temple. And they came with an array of weapons. They had lanterns and torches so they could find Jesus and they had weapons as well. So they all came uh, prepared to arrest Jesus. Let's make a comparison to another situation. Uh, David, when he, uh, when um, Absalom wanted to take over and become king and, and replace his father, David also left Jerusalem and we're told <clears throat> Uh, we're told in, in uh, Kings and that he, he crossed the Kidron Valley. He came to this garden. He went on up the Mount of Olives. But from there, David didn't stay there. Uh, he went on and he headed toward the Jordan River. And in fact, when he, when he knew what their plans were, he went across the Jordan River. So David did the sort of thing that we would consider to be normal, evasive, protective uh, strategy. He went across the Jordan River, he crossed the boundary to get away from from Absalom and, and any forces he would put together. But Jesus stayed right there. Jesus stayed there where he could be arrested because he knew his calling was different than David's. David's calling was to protect himself and those around him from the attack of Absalom. Jesus' calling was to protect us from the attack of our own sin, from the attack of Satan, from the, from the power of, of sin in the world around us and the power of sin in our own hearts. Uh, Jesus' task was to go to the cross for us. And so Jesus needed to be arrested to be our savior. David needed to flee in order to have a future as savior of his people, Israel. There's another <clears throat> man in a garden uh, who failed us and his name was Adam. Adam lived in a garden, maybe a little bit like this garden. Adam lived there, but Adam was not there to be found. Adam was there hiding. Because when the temptation came to Adam, Adam listened to a snake giving him advice in a tree, instead of listening to God and God speaking the truth to him. Adam failed us because In his garden situation, instead of coming to God in prayer and saying, your will be done and not mine, he listened to the serpent. He wanted his own glory. He wanted his own freedom. He didn't want to give up anything uh, for the sake of God and for our sakes instead. But instead, Adam sinned and Adam rebelled against God. Jesus goes into the garden and he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And this cup, this responsibility that I don't want to take, it's not good for me personally. I will take it because that's what we have agreed I would do. So Jesus is the one who goes into the garden ready to be arrested. And notice what happens here. Knowing all that would happen to him in verse 4, Jesus comes forward to these men who were equipped and armed to arrest him, and he says, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. It doesn't just, he, John's just not informing us uh, that Judas was there, because we already know Judas was there. But basically that Judas had taken his stand with these men. These were now Judas's men. Jesus was not uh, their leader anymore. These men were, were uh, Judas's leader. Judas was taking his stand with them, and here's here's Jesus by himself. His disciples holding back in the background, maybe hiding behind the trees. Uh, Jesus is by himself, defenseless uh, among. His followers, there's one sword, maybe two, uh, but these men are equipped to arrest him. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is the one who goes in front of them and says, who are you seeking? And when they say Jesus of Nazareth, his answer is, I am he. It's another I am in the Gospel of John. Jesus is using those words of, of that God speaks to us uh, the name that he has, I am. And Jesus says, I am. And here, here is this almost ridiculous situation in which these men are armed, and there's a, a, a mob of them. There's a big group, and Jesus is basically standing by himself. And when he says, I am he, they drew back, they fell to the ground. How could they be uh, afraid of him? How could they be in awe? How could they stumble backwards and fall to the ground in front of Jesus? Well, there's something that John wants us to understand about the glory of Christ. That he is, he is an awesome presence before these armed men. Uh, he that they are going to arrest, they have the warrant for his arrest. Uh, he, they, he is the one that they are afraid of. And they back off. Jesus knows that he is supposed to be arrested. So his his response is to, to refocus them, in a sense. So he asks them again, whom do you seek? So the first part of this is that Jesus really sets his own trap in verses 1 to 7. Instead of avoiding it, Jesus sets the trap and he walks into it. He places himself almost like like the bait to be caught in the trap. But then from verse 8 on, Jesus takes the place of his own. Jesus, the second time, he says to them, I am he. Uh, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus entered, I tell you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. You realize in this kind of a judicial sort of a situation, the arrest Jesus is clarifying, what does your arrest warrant say? It says, Jesus of Nazareth. He's gotten them to say that twice now, and therefore he is saying, okay, these men are not on the warrant. Let them go. Jesus is protecting these men who are hiding behind him among the trees. Jesus is concerned about them and not about himself. You wonder, why is Jesus protect them. Peter has already said several times, I will go to the death with you. Any place you go, I will go. I will never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. Uh, And yet Jesus says, let these men go. Uh, Simon Peter makes a feeble attempt. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Luke tells us, Luke the doctor says, that Jesus stopped then and he healed Malchus's ear. Something that a physician would be interested in knowing about. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus is protecting his disciples because he knows they're not ready. He knows Peter has said these things, Uh, He sees Peter's uh, impulsive action with his sword. Jesus is not surprised by that. He knows Peter's character, that Peter would act this way. But Jesus knows that Peter and the others are not ready. He knows what's going to happen to Peter. He knows what's going to happen to himself. So he knows what Peter is going to do. He knows that Peter is not ready to be arrested, uh, to to have his life threatened along with Jesus' um, life. And he knows that the rest are not as bold as Peter. Uh, He knows their weakness. And he knows the weakness of our own hearts as well. He knows that like Peter, we are ready to make promises. We're ready to say, Jesus, I'll follow you any place you go. Jesus, I would go to the death for you. But he also knows that there are times when we have an opportunity to identify with him, to speak for him. Uh, to share the gospel with someone else and we hold back. Uh, he knows that many times we are full of good intentions, but sin so easily traps us. I think of my own week this past week, and you can think of the same way in which uh, at one point I had good intentions and may have expressed those to someone else, but then a temptation comes and, and it's so easy to fall prey to it. It's so easy to to fall back and not say what we ought to say. To do the easy thing instead of the hard thing. Uh, To to speak as though we are full of power and boldness and righteousness, and yet to realize how much sin controls us in subtle ways and sneaky ways, and we don't even see it coming and we fall prey to it. Jesus knows our weakness. While we're here, we should also note that this is not the kind of thing which is written um, later on when people are saying, let's make up some stories about Jesus and, and make them look very real, uh, because those kinds of stories, the kinds of things in which, in which some uh, person's character is exalted in an account, often they're, they're kind of spiritualized and otherworldly and they're not really in touch with reality. You notice how in touch with reality that Jesus, uh, John is when he writes this. He, he doesn't say uh, one of the disciples uh, drew a sword and, uh, and attacked these men and tried to defend Jesus and make him look like a hero uh, in that account, but instead uh, he's very specific that it was Peter who drew the sword and that it was the high priest's servant whose ear he cut off and it was his right ear. Now, why are those details there? Well, one reason is, John may think, and, and you see this in other Gospels, uh, you know Malchus, you remember the guy with the funny-looking lobe on his right ear? Uh, ask him if you have any questions about this. Malchus can testify to what I've said. Those are the kinds of little details that, that are in there because John was there, and John saw, and Malchus was there and they knew what was happening. This is, this is an eyewitness account. This is not one of those spiritualized holy histories that is out of touch with reality. Jesus was in touch with reality and in touch with the reality of his disciples. He knew the needs of Peter's heart. He knew that for Peter's sake, for John's sake, for all the disciples' sake, he knew that for your sake and for my sake, he had to go to the cross. And he had to take our place. He had to be the one who cared for us. John says that Jesus had had given this word. Um, Jesus answered, um, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have not lost one. And throughout the Gospels, it will use this expression. He did this to fulfill the word that was spoken. And in those contexts, it's always speaking of the things were written in Scripture. Interestingly here, Jesus uses the same formula. This was to fulfill the word, but he's quoting Jesus that was spoken by Jesus. Of those whom you gave me have not lost one. John treats the words that Jesus spoke the same as he treats the words that are written in Scripture. Jesus is fulfilling his promise that he would not lose anyone. And the reason for that is the reason he gave to Peter when he said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That's really the key verse to this whole passage. That Jesus is doing this to drink the cup that the Father has given me. If you turn to Psalm chapter um, 75, there it speaks of God's judgment. Verse 7, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it on all the wicked of the earth. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Elsewhere, that expression of God's cup is, is used in talking about other nations that have rebelled against God and having to drink the cup of God's wrath. But, but the, the people of Israel and, and will do the same thing that we tend to do. And when we read about God's uh, cup of, of wrath uh, for the wicked... We think that it belongs to somebody else. We think this is not my cup because I'm not really wicked. Uh, I I don't get everything right and I make mistakes and I don't always follow through on my good intentions, but we don't see ourselves as the wicked. But what Jesus is doing when he says, I need to drink this cup, is he's saying this cup belongs to Peter. It really is Peter's cup. It's John's cup. It's my cup. It's your cup. It's a cup that belongs to us and that we ought to drink. But Jesus says, I need to drink this cup in Peter's place, in John's place, in your place, in my place, because you and I cannot drink this cup without being destroyed. But Jesus says, I'm going to drink this cup for you. And that is is an agreement between he and his Father. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? The Father, the Son, even before the world was created, knew that sin would need to be paid for. That your sin and my sin would need to be paid for. And that God is rightly angry and full of wrath at our sin. That someone would have to drink that cup. But the Father and Son agreed that we will take that cup upon ourselves and that the Son would be the one who would drink it and he would be broken in his relationship with his own Father for the sake of Peter, for the sake of you, for the sake of me. In the third part of this passage we see that Jesus is the true High Priest and we see in this trial, that it's not really a trial of chaos in a sense, because Jesus is the one who is in charge. Jesus is the one who is seeking justice. Not justice for himself, but justice for you and I. There's a confusion in this passage about who the high priest really is. If you look at, um, at verse 13... So the band of the soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man should die for the people. So they go before the high priest. It talks about Simon Peter being in the high priest's courtyard. And then it says in verse uh, verse nineteen, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered them. And uh, uh, one man didn't like Jesus' answer, so he says, "How is that?" And how you answer the high priest? But then at the at the end of that paragraph in verse twenty four, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. So who is the high priest? A lot of people have tried to switch these verses around and figure out some way in which they think maybe maybe this uh, verse 24 is in the wrong place or, you know, because who's the high priest? Well, if you look at the history of what really happened here, you'll find why there's a confusion. The normal high priest, uh, it's a hereditary role for life, was Annas. But the Romans didn't like Annas. And the Romans, of course, wanted to show that they had authority and they were in control. And so they deposed Annas from his position and they appointed his son to be high priest. And then they switched it around. So Annas's five sons all took turns being high priest. And his son in law, Caiaphas, was priest at this particular point. So here you have Annas, whom the Jews would consider the rightful high priest, but Caiaphas is the official high priest approved by the Romans this year. And probably when they come to the high priest's courtyard, there probably is an enclosure and in that is Annas's house and there's also Caiaphas' house and it's all within the same courtyard. And there's official places where they would handle trials and meetings and things like that in that particular place. And so it is accurate to say that they took him to the high priest, they took him to Annas, uh, who the Jews would consider the high priest, and then he was transferred to Caiaphas, who had a legitimacy under the Romans as high priest in that year. And so both of them were involved in different parts of the trial. Uh, Annas, because he was he was the senior one and man, the man who, who called the shots. Uh, he got the first chance to interview Jesus. You might compare it to a family-owned company in which, you know, the father is is no longer, he, he's the chairman of the board now. He has this official role and his son is the chief operating officer or maybe his son-in-law. They all have positions within the company. Uh, but everyone defers to the father and in many ways, uh, even though the 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 orders are signed by the son or the son-in-law. It's that kind of a situation. So there's confusion here. Who really is the high priest? And I think the way in which John writes this, he wants us to understand that yes, Annas has claims to be the high priest, and, and Caiaphas is the official high priest, and they have this authority in the leadership structure. But you know who the real high priest is? Jesus. Jesus is the one who is God's heavenly high priest. He's the one who can bring a sacrifice for us. He is the one who can be that sacrifice for us. Jesus is the real temple in his body. He is the one who is going to come uh, between us and the Father and reconcile us to the Father and is going to cover us over with his blood. Uh, These two men are pretenders, and they're doing a poor job of it as well. They don't really know what it means to be the high priest. Caiaphas can speak words which are prophetic and say it is good for one man to die for the sake of the people. But he's saying that from a selfish, deceptive perspective, even though it is true that Jesus is the one man who is going to die for the people. The other pretender, the other person who's in need of salvation is Peter. And John spent some time in the middle of all of this describing Peter. You remember Peter had said, I will follow you uh, any place, even to death. But when he follows Jesus along with his other disciple, he can't get into the courtyard because he's not known to them. And the other disciple who's known, for some reason we don't know, uh, maybe he used to sell fish to the high priest's household. Uh, maybe he's related in some way. But anyhow, when <clears throat> this other disciple, uh, we don't know who it is, uh, came to the gate, they let him in because he was known. But Peter was kept out. So Peter says, I will follow you anywhere, but when he comes to the gate, he can't follow. Uh, Jesus said, I'll, I'll give my life for you, and he And he got his sword out and attacked Malchus. And Jesus says, put your sword away. That's not what we're doing here, uh, Peter. So Peter's enthusiasm was misdirected. Peter is simply cold. He's there and he he can't keep warm. And so he joins this group around the fire to stay warm. Uh, Jesus is the one who ought to be cold, he's the one who's arrested. Uh, Peter's there just in the courtyard but his simple humanity is that he's cold and he needs to be around the fire. Uh, Jesus is the one who who proclaims who he is. Uh, before the arresting mob, before the high priest, uh, Peter in, in all his bravado when confronted by a servant girl maintaining the gate, says, no, I don't know him. So here's the contrast. Jesus, when they come, uh, seeking Jesus from Nazareth, says, I am he. Peter, when he's confronted by a servant girl or somebody around the fire, says, I am not one of his disciples. Peter's there in this account because a lot of ways Peter is like us. Uh, We get cold. And we're subject to to the weakness of our own body and we give in to temptation. And we compromise ourselves uh, because it's warmer by the fire and to stand by the fire I need to say I'm not one of his disciples. We compromise ourselves because we're afraid of what this servant girl might do to us. What might happen in this situation where we're challenged to really stand up as a Christian. Our sin... Uh, has more influence in our lives than we 're willing to admit we need someone to drink the cup for us, and that someone is jesus and Jesus stands before the high priest verse nineteen it says he questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching two things: Jesus controls the the uh, the answering because he skips over the disciples. He's not going to give any information about these men. Their names or where they can be found. They're not on the arrest warrant. He's not going to give information. So he only answers the questions about his teaching. And Jesus, when he answers the question, he answers in a proper legal way. He's being asked to testify against himself, which is not according to the regulations uh, for this kind of trial in the, in the Jewish court, court, <clears throat> so Jesus uh, doesn't answer the question himself. He says, he says there are plenty of witnesses out there. Because I spoke publicly and I spoke openly, you can ask those people and get them to testify about what I said. Uh, Jesus says I've spoken openly in the world. Jesus has not hidden what he is teaching. When Jesus says uh, I have spoken openly, I have not spoken uh, in in uh, secret, I have said nothing in secret. Jesus isn't talking saying I never had any private conversations with my disciples. In fact, there were many times he had to explain things to them that he had told the public and that they didn't understand. Jesus is but what Jesus is saying is I didn't have a public message and then have a revolutionary message that was secret. Everything I've said has been open and you can try me on those bases. I have spoken openly to the world. Uh, When Jesus spoke in that way, uh, one of the officers standing there struck him and said, is that how you answer the high priest? Another case, uh, Paul is on trial before the Sanhedrin and uh, he kind of gives a mild rebuke to the high priest and someone says, is that the way you speak to the high priest? And and uh, uh, the Apostle Paul apologizes and said, uh, I didn't know that was the high priest because the scripture says don't, don't um, speak that way about the leader of your people. Jesus doesn't apologize. Jesus just says to him what is legally correct, if what I said is wrong, bear witness, uh, bring testimony. Legal testimony about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus comes before these men, but Jesus is the one who is innocent. Jesus is there because he knows you and I are not innocent. And he is there because he is seeking not justice for himself, but he's seeking justice for us. And that justice means that he needs to go to the cross. Jesus goes... And stands before these men because he is our high priest and he needs to intercede for us. He needs to stand before between us and the wrath of God. He needs to take that cup in his hands. Uh, and, a, and the sermon title is intentionally that he grasps the cup for us. It isn't spilled on him. It isn't forced on him But he reaches out and he takes that cup with both hands and he takes a firm grip and he says, this is my cup. Not because I deserve it, but because my people have no answer but for me to drink this cup. It doesn't say that he took a sip of that cup. Jesus came to drain it down to the dregs, to the bottom, so that when God's wrath needs to be answered there's nothing left in the cup for you and i next week when you come to the lord's supper you will take a cup it will be a small cup and it will not be a cup of god's wrath because jesus has drained that cup the cup you get will be a cup of rejoicing a cup of salvation a cup of joy And you can take that and share that with each other uh, because it belongs to you through what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, our understanding of what you have done for us is sometimes too small. It's too influenced by the world around us, too influenced by what would I have done in that situation. We realize, Lord, that Jesus, that you are like no other. That when the Father's wrath fills a cup and it's foaming and angry, that it belongs to us, but that you said, no, it's mine. And you took it from our hands. And you drank it dry. That there would be no more wrath left for us. Help us, Lord, in taking the cup of salvation and rejoicing in what you have done. Help us to go away rejoicing that you have dealt with the Father's anger on our behalf, that you have provided a sacrifice, that you are our high priest, that you are the one who who protects us and shelters us, that none that the Father has given to you would be lost. We pray with rejoicing. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.